Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! Just days after the Taliban bans women from attending university, prompting protests of women chanting either everyone or no one, Afghanistan's Taliban government has issued an order barring women from working for non-governmental organizations. As a result, many of those groups have now pulled out. We'll speak with Jan Egland, head of the Norwegian Refugee Council, and with leading Afghani feminist Jamila Afghani. Then we look at insecurity a new series by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Intercept about people falling through the cracks of the social safety net during the pandemic. A lot of cliches rose up during the pandemic. Everyone who wants a job can get a job. The great resignation, the quiet quit. Even maybe people just don't want to work that hard. Good morning. But Ishani Gaston can't turn down work. In fact, she's had to piece together different jobs to try and make a living wage. I am a low-wage worker. Life as a low-wage worker is living paycheck to paycheck. Pandemic poverty. We'll speak with the series host, longtime journalist Ray Suarez. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The death toll from a -a once-in-a-generation winter storm that brought Arctic temperatures and heavy snow to much of the U.S. has risen to 50. More than half the dead are in Buffalo, New York, where search and rescue crews are searching for people trapped under more than four feet of snow. More snowfall forecasts for today. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said, It's the worst blizzard ever in a city known for its inclement winter weather. And this will go down in history as the most uh, devastating storm in Buffalo's uh, long story history of having uh, battled many battles, many, many major storms. The winter weather grounded thousands of flights and caused chaos on one of the busiest travel days of the year. In Texas, federal regulators have granted the Electric Reliability Council of Texas permission to exceed air quality limits and pollute more than is usually allowed in order to meet surging demand due to freezing temperatures. Meanwhile, Jackson, Mississippi, has once again issued a boil water order for city residents after cold temperatures caused pipe to burst and brought pressure through Jackson's crumbling water system to a trickle. 
In Texas, the city of El Paso extended an emergency declaration over the weekend as temperatures plunged into the teens and shelters reached capacity. The declaration came as hundreds of migrants spent the Christmas holiday outdoors on the Mexican side of the border despite freezing temperatures. They were unable to cross to the U.S. to seek asylum after the Supreme Court last week ordered the Biden administration to continue the Trump-era Title 42 policy, which has been used to expel some 2 million and people from the border. This is a Venezuelan asylum seeker speaking from Ciudad Juarez on Christmas Eve. I would like to spend Christmas in a place where it is not cold. I would really like to have shelter, just as everyone here would like to spend Christmas under a roof, because the cold is strong. Hundreds of asylum seekers also slept outside in freezing weather in El Paso, Texas. Meanwhile, more than 100 asylum seekers arrived on buses outside the residence of Vice President Kamala Harris on Christmas Eve as temperatures in Washington, D.C. dropped to 18 degrees Fahrenheit. They were the latest migrants sent by Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott to cities led by Democrats. Immigrant rights activist Jen Kaufman said the People seeking asylum were quickly given blankets and brought to a shelter by members of the D.C. Migrant Solidarity Mutual Aid Network. She added this was intended to be a cruel stunt by Greg Abbott, but people are working around the clock to treat these families with the dignity they deserve. In Afghanistan, the Taliban's decree that women can no longer work for non-governmental organizations, including humanitarian relief agencies. Under the new rules announced Saturday, groups that employ women could lose their license to operate in Afghanistan. And at least five key NGOs have now halted work there. CARE International, the Norwegian Refugee Council, Save the Children, the International Rescue Committee, and Islamic Relief. This is David Wright, Chief Operating Officer at Save the Children International. We have got 5,000 staff and community, uh, including community volunteers in Afghanistan. Uh, almost half of those are women. Uh, so essentially, if we were to keep working, we'd have to turn up, uh, turn up for work tomorrow with half our workforce missing. This comes just days after the Taliban banned women from attending university. We'll have more on this story after headlines with the head of um, Nor the Norwegian um, Council, as well as a leading Afghani feminist. South Korea's military scrambled warplanes and helicopter gunships on Monday after five North Korean drones crossed the demilitarized zone separating the two countries. It was the first time since 2017 North Korean drones have entered South Korean airspace. South Korea's military said it had sent its own drones over the north in response. Officials in Taiwan have extended mandatory military service for young men to one year, up from the current four months. The change in Taiwan's conscription period came after dozens of Chinese military aircraft on Monday entered into airspace designated by Taiwan as an air defense zone. It was the latest in a series of patrols and military exercises carried out on the Taiwan Strait by both China and the United States. China's government says it'll end quarantine requirements for international travelers beginning January 8th and in another major shift away from its long-running zero-COVID policy. Beginning January 8th, arrivals at Chinese ports will be required only to show a negative COVID test result obtained within 48 hours of departure. The relaxed guidelines come after China's top health authority estimates that tens of millions of people are becoming infected with coronavirus each day, making China's current outbreak by far the worst in the world. This is an ER doctor at Peking University and People's Hospital.
All the patients who come here have oxygen levels at only 50%, 60%, 70% or so. So we feel a lot of pressure when it comes to severe cases. Our medical staff fell ill one after another, and many colleagues are still working despite being sick. Russia says three military servicemen were killed by falling debris Monday after a Ukrainian drone was shot down as it approached an airbase used to launch attacks in Ukraine. It was the latest in a series of attacks by Ukraine deep inside Russian territory. In Ukraine, fighting continued over the weekend after calls for a Christmas ceasefire went unheeded. Ukraine's government says Russian artillery fire killed 10 people and injured dozens more on Christmas Eve in the city of Kherson, which was recaptured by Ukraine last month. Russian attacks on the power grid left some 9 million people without electricity over the holiday weekend. On Sunday, Russian President Vladimir Putin said he's prepared to negotiate to end the war in Ukraine, adding, quote, it's not us who refuse talks, it's them, he said. Ukraine's foreign minister, meanwhile, called on the U.N. to convene a peace summit with Secretary General Antonio Guterres as mediator. In Nepal, the former leader of the Maoist insurgency that helped end monarchical rule has been appointed prime minister for a third time. Pushpa Kamal Dahal, better known as Prachanda, took the oath of office Monday after winning the backing of coalition led by the unified Marxist-Leninist party. Prachanda led Nepal briefly in 2008 and 9, and again in 2016. He previously led a Maoist consurgency in way that waged a decade-long civil war that ended with the abolition of the Shah dynasty in 2008 and the establishment of a republic. Brazil's incoming justice minister says security will be tightened for New Year's Day inauguration of president-elect Lula da Silva after authorities stopped an alleged bomb plot over the weekend. George Washington de Oliveira Sousa, a 54-year-old businessman and supporter of outgoing far-right president Jair Bolsonaro, was arrested on terrorism charges Saturday. He's accused of attempting to set off a bomb near the airport in the capital, Brasilia. Local police say the suspect confessed that he intended to start chaos ahead of Lula's inauguration to, quote, prevent the establishment of communism in Brazil, unquote. Facebook's parent company, Meta, has agreed to pay $725 million to settle a class-action lawsuit brought by plaintiffs who say the social media giant improperly shared users' information with Cambridge Analytica, a company founded by the right-wing billionaire Robert Mercer. During the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign, Cambridge Analytica harvested some 87 million Facebook profiles without the user's knowledge or consent and used the data to sway voters during the 2016 campaign campaign. And congressional Democrats are calling on New York Republican Congress member-elect George Santos to resign after he admitted he repeatedly lied about his work, his education, and family history. On Monday, Santos admitted to The New York Post he fabricated his claims that he'd worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and that he'd earned a degree from Baruch College and NYU. Santos also spoke with New York radio station WABC. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a, a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. I've been around a long time. I mean, a lot of people know me. They know who I am. They've done business dealings with me. And, and I'm not going to make excuses for this, but a lot of people overstate in their resumes or um, twist a little bit or engrandate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. 
Santos also admitted he falsely claimed his grandparents were Jewish and fled the Holocaust. He told The New York Post, quote, I'm Catholic because I learned my maternal family had a Jewish background. I said I was Jewish, unquote. Texas Democratic Representative Joaquin Castro responded, Congress should expel George Santos if he refuses to resign and called on authorities to investigate him. Castro added, quote, just about every aspect of his life appears to be a lie. We've seen people fudge the resume, but this is a total fabrication, he said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, the Taliban has issued an order barring women from working for non-governmental organizations in Afghanistan. We'll speak with the head of the Norwegian Refugee Council, which has pulled out of Afghanistan as a result, and with a leading Afghan feminist. Stay with us. زن هستم دختر هستم خواهر هستم رفیق و همسر هستم مادر هستم دو حرف و یه هجاله که بمنان بزرگ و باشه بهنامر Zan Astam. I am woman by the Afghan singer Ariana Saeed. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show in Afghanistan, where the Taliban government issued an order over the weekend that women can no longer work for non-governmental organizations. This includes relief agencies. Groups that employ women could lose their license to operate in the country. Five top non-governmental organizations have now halted work in Afghanistan as a result. CARE International, the Norwegian Refugee Council, Save the Children, the International Rest Committee, and Islamic Relief. In a joint statement from CARE, the NRC, and Save the Children, the groups noted they, quote, would not have jointly reached millions of Afghans in need since August 2021 without their female staff. A Taliban spokesperson accused female workers at the aid groups of breaking dress codes by not wearing hijabs. The Taliban's new edict came just days after it banned women from attending university, prompting a protest Wednesday in Kabul. Taliban forces arrested five protesters, three journalists, and some of the women said they were beaten by security forces. Guards also prevented hundreds of women from entering during their colleges a day after the ban was announced. This is Mariam, a student at Kabul University who was turned away from her campus. 
When I got close to the university, I saw a strange environment. Taliban Humvees were parked at the entrance gate, and the Taliban were behaving so badly, telling us, return to your homes. Girls have no right to study anymore. This situation has a very bad impact on every female student. This comes after the Taliban barred Afghan girls from attending secondary school earlier this year. For more, we're joined by two guests. Jamila Afghani is an Afghan educator, women's rights activist who leads the Afghanistan section of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. She's the founder of the Noor Educational and Capacity Development Organization and created the first gender-sensitive training in Afghanistan for imams. She's joining us from Kitchener, Canada. Uh, she's lived there since she was evacuated from Kabul um, last August after spending time in Norway. And in Oslo, Norway, we're joined by Jan Eglund, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, one of the groups that's now pulled out of the country. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! We're going to begin with Jamil Afghani. If you can respond to the series of edicts, and then we'll go to Norway, where you were evacuated to from Afghanistan more than a year ago, um, to talk with Jan Eglund, whose group is now halting work there because of this latest edict. But first, Jamila, your response. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, thank you very much for having me uh, in your program. Uh, unfortunately, the ban uh, on women education and uh, later on the ban on women uh, from uh, employment and national and international NGOs, which were the main source of hate support for Afghan women and children. And this peak uh, situation of humanitarian crisis and very cold winter. Uh, this was an act against human uh, humanity. And it was uh, very shocking news for all Afghan and for especially for those women who are breadwinner of their family. So the situation inside Afghanistan is very chaotic on daily basis. I'm in contact with my colleagues, with my network around the country, and everybody is disappointed from this action of Taliban. The Taliban who promised to be changed to allow women uh, for their education, for their employment, uh, but unfortunately, they are not keeping their promise with the international community, with people of Afghanistan. And could you talk about the what's been the situation with women attending a higher education or the university since the Taliban took over? And what, uh, from what you can tell, prompted this action now? Actually, Taliban from the very beginning banned girls from going to school from grade 6 up to grade 12. Then in the past one year, we were engaged in multi-layer of advocacy for reopening of the school. And unfortunately, nothing worked, nothing worked. And we were expecting that Taliban may uh, ban girls from the higher education and rest of um, education area. 
But with the latest announcement, um, Taliban has banned women, girls from all level of education, even from religious educational uh, centers with women and girls are born. And the reason Taliban are giving that is about hijab or uh, not observing hijab, which is totally wrong justification. Uh, none of Afghan women, even before the Taliban, uh, such a decree uh, was uh, was uh, not without hijab. Everybody was wearing their hijab, but the special black dress code that Taliban is taking, uh, most of the girls are doing that. Um, and the special dress code which Taliban is dictating on women of Afghanistan, it has no space in Islamic teaching. There is no space in Islamic history about that. Islam has given a proper justification or dress code about women and the limits and everything is clear cut in Quran mentioned. There is nothing that Taliban is claiming. And even this claim of Taliban is an act of criminal, uh, putting wrong blame or bad blame on the women of Afghanistan that they are demoral or they are engaged in demorality. And I'm ashamed of having such an Afghan person talking about these things in this way in front of international community. And this is not uh, the word of an Afghan person. Well, you participated in the Doha talks with the Taliban back in 2019. You uh, and you directly questioned them about their position, would, what their position would be on women accessing education and being able to work. What did they tell you then? And uh, has anybody responded to why they've changed uh, their policy so dramatically? Yeah, uh, during my visit in Qatar in 2019, we directly raised the question and they totally uh, were very uh, open with the current uh, dress code of Afghan women and they were very open about the education of women and they were saying that this is an Islamic right, this is the Sharia right, so nobody can take away the Sharia right. But the current uh, acting minister of um, virtue, uh, minister of uh, virtue and the other minister, acting minister of higher education, it seems that they have no knowledge of Islam. They haven't studied Islam. They have been ignorant about the Islamic teachings that they don't know what is Sharia, what is the rights of women in Sharia of Islam. Uh, the only thing that I can see this stubbornness that is part of their uh, tribalism, that they are, uh, this is the part, um, type of uh, patriarchal mindset that they have, there is nothing with Islam. And people of Afghanistan, alhamdulillah, we are Muslims. We understand what are the limitations in Sharia. And most of us, we are observing and this person who is very ignorant uh, and Taliban leadership must remove these people from the system as soon as possible. They are bridging, uh, they are uh, breaking the bridge between nation and the acting uh, current government who has not recognition on the international level. And now they are not forcing people to, to believe them or to be part of them. With this type of mindset, no one will stand beside them.
Jamila Afghani, if you can respond to the Taliban trying to frame this as the West versus them uh, and Western organizations like uh, Jan Eglin's Norwegian Refugee Council, who we're going to go to in a minute, um, trying to tell Afghanistan what to do, trying to frame it as the West versus Afghanistan rather than Afghanistan versus the women. Your response. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Afghan women are part of human humanity. Afghan women are not a special creature from somewhere else. We are part of humanity and Afghan women are making half half body of the nation of Afghanistan. How how Taliban or any government can ignore that? And currently, the aid organization, including uh, the local organization, they were acting to provide humanitarian assistance for women and children of Afghanistan. This is what international community should do, and they should be engaged. Although the sanction in Afghanistan on economic situation in Afghanistan, but still these organizations were working with so much difficulty. But now Taliban banned them to work. This is a, a criminal act uh, that Taliban are doing. This is not responsibility of West. This is the responsibility of Taliban as an acting government to look after the people of Afghanistan. If they are putting this much pressure on people of Afghanistan, on whom they are going to 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 have their kingdom, to have their uh, rulership. I want to bring Jan Eglund into this conversation, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, speaking to us from Oslo. Jan, um, a U.N. official told the BBC that the United Nations could stop humanitarian aid delivery in Afghanistan if the, if the Taliban don't reverse their edict banning women aid workers. Now, you, the Norwegian Refugee Council, has already decided to halt your work there as a result of this latest Taliban edict. Can you talk about what went into your decision, who are the women who work for you and what this could mean? Well, it came out of the blue, really, on Christmas Eve, 24th of December. Um, and it was a circular from the Minister of Economy that sits on our permits to operate. And it went to all of uh, virtually all of the non-governmental organizations, Afghan and international. And they said that females cannot anymore work. We uh, are totally dependent on our committed, hardworking, professional female workforce. They are colleagues that we have promoted to management positions. They are essential to our work. So that's why we didn't pull, pull out, as some, some phrase it. We're still there. We, we did not go with the, with the West uh, that left um, a, a year ago. We have been there ever since uh, and we have been in Taliban-controlled territory and other territory for decades. Um, the, the reason we did halt work are twofold. Number one, we cannot operate without our, our female staff. It would be inferior uh, operations. Uh, males cannot directly give uh, aid to uh, women. Women and children are the people that are those who are in greatest need. The second reason is really that we would disintegrate as a principled and good employer. We have a 
global program. And I've said to the Taliban many times in Kabul, and even when they came to Norway, that we respect the traditional Afghan values and we live by them when they we are in their country. But we have values too. We cannot compromise on this, the equality of males and females to work together in a common cause. And Jan Eglin, uh, the claim of the Taliban that the international, the those uh, Afghan women who work for international aid organizations have not been wearing the hijab, had they raised this at all previously as a concern of theirs, or did this just come, as, as you mentioned, out of the blue? No, it came out of the blue. I mean, they've been, they came banging on our door when they took over in the places where they took over. They told us that they would strictly enforce the uh, Islamic uh, standards, the traditional values. And since then, we have, uh, our female colleagues have used the hijab. We have separated males and females in the workplace. And we even have male relative guardians traveling with our female colleagues on longer travel. All of this is in accordance with what they instructed. Actually, it's true, as, as, as the previous speaker said, much of this we did during the previous government as well. Maybe they have one or two examples of, 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 of an office where the hijab was not in place when they came. So give a warning to that, that group to paralyze work for millions of people in the midst of the winter is really a gut blow to the population, to the people of Afghanistan. We cannot compromise on this. We cannot work with that ban. And, and, how, and what do you, what do you ahead, perceive Mark. to be the impact of the continuing impact of the Western sanctions uh, in Afghanistan? Uh, obviously, the the inability of some of the international organizations that are there to function will only make things worse. But what is the what is right now the impact of those sanctions? Well, the sanctions are still a problem in the sense that there is still a lot of money sitting in Washington, for example, that was meant for the Afghan people, money belonging to the Afghan Central Bank. Development money was withdrawn. This was a place where the West spent hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to to provide for the 40 million civilians. And when they left, they closed many of these uh, these development streams and Western banks were so afraid of the sanctions, especially the American sanctions, that they stopped financial transfers. We do have now the permits to do our work. The uh, Biden administration has a humanitarian carve-out, which is pretty good, but we, stri- we still struggle with having Western companies work with us. However... Today, a, a problem is squarely the Taliban hardliners that were able to enforce extremist um, lines of late out of Kandahar and, where they, and elsewhere where they are now sitting. So it's a, it's, a, it's a struggle of values, really, also within the Taliban. And we need to win that. And I'm glad that the UN seems now to take the lead in working for a reversal of this ban. Um, I wanted to ask Jumail Afghani um, about 
whether you support these groups pulling out at this point and what you think the chances are of the Taliban reversing themselves on this. It's also just so interesting that we have you on, Jamila, um, with Jan Egland, because you appealed to the Norwegian authorities as the U.S. was pulling out um, to evacuate you. You're very challenged as a child. You suffered from polio. Um, physically challenged. Then you were shot in the head during the Soviet occupation. You had to get yourself and your children out, and it was Norway that helped you get out to, Nor to Norway? Yeah, I'm really thankful as an Afghan woman, as a, an individual, on behalf of all my sisters and people of Afghanistan, for uh, these uh, organizations like Norwegian uh, Care, uh, IRC, and some other organization that they have been beside women of uh, women of Afghanistan and people of Afghanistan for decades by providing multi-layer activity and support for the people of Afghanistan. Even during the former government, when fighting was going on in many provinces, they were present there and they were supporting people of Afghanistan. And their hold back means uh, a lot for us in terms of uh, that they are uh, in solidarity with us, with women of Afghanistan, with people of Afghanistan. And they are really understanding what is the situation on the ground. And the way we are disappointed from the uh, Taliban authorities, especially from the hardliner authorities, um, that they are not belong to Afghanistan, they do not understand people of Afghanistan, they do not have the knowledge of what's going on the situation on humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Uh, as I was individually uh, in a very uh, hard moment that everybody left Afghanistan. Everybody left Afghanistan, US, NATO, everybody. But still I was supported and evacuated, and I spent one year in Norway with the very good uh, intention and support I was there. But due to climate and some other reasons, <clears throat> I was shifted here in Canada. Uh, so uh, if uh, these international organizations are not working with people of Afghanistan, there will be a dilemma, a dilemma that humanitarian might not have such a such an example of it. Taliban are ignorant. They are not understanding what's going on because U.S. is injecting 40, uh, $40 million cash money in Afghanistan and a good sum of these money are going to their pocket. They have good life. They, they are marrying for the second time, for the third time, for the fourth time, and they do not understand what people of Afghanistan are suffering. So, and Jamila Afghani, I wanted to ask you, what has been the response of the masses of Afghani men uh, to these latest uh, acts of the Taliban, especially young, uh, young men in Afghanistan? Uh, what have, uh, have they risen up in protest at all or expressed solidarity with uh, the women who are being uh, put under this almost fascistic rule? Yes, um, Afghan men also stand in solidarity with Afghan women. 
and some of the university boys rejected to to go for the uh, final exam because the announcement of Taliban came right on the last paper on the last day of the final examination. Some of the boys, some of the students uh, walk out from the examination and some of them joined the protest. But Taliban was very harsh, very brutal with them, especially in Kandahar and some other provinces. As men are more exposed to the beating, killing, uh, torture of Taliban, that's why the situation is very hard. And you can see that even the journalists are not also protected from uh, from any kind of coverage of the scenario. But uh, yesterday and day before yesterday in Kabul and Hedhat and some other provinces, men and women stand on the top of their roof and they were shouting for the right of women. And the darkness uh, in, from the fear of execution, from the fear of beating and killing. So this is the situation. The situation is uh, very bad. And even we heard a lot of uh, good support from ulema of Afghanistan, from prominent scholars of Afghanistan about the support of women's uh, participation in education and empowerment and their employment. They stood beside us and they uh, invited Taliban for a religious dialogue. I'm also inviting Taliban for a religious dialogue. If it is Sharia, we need to know what type of Sharia they are uh, they are understanding. We the, the Islam we know and the word is practicing is totally different from the interpretation of Taliban. We are inviting them to sit and on the table and discuss about the Sharia. We will bring men and women ulama to discuss with them to find out what is the reason. With this type of ignorance, with this type of um, ban on the women of Afghanistan, that is that is totally insane. My question from the Taliban are: they are uh, in this world because of a mother. This is their attitude with their own mothers and with their own sisters. They are putting bling on the women of Afghanistan that they are not uh, moral. Uh, they are doing some act of demorality. This is such a big shame. You're putting this name on the name of all women of Afghanistan. This is such a big shame. All men and women of Afghanistan are dignified people. They are Muslim before Taliban. They are Muslim now and they will remain Muslim after Taliban. They should understand what they are saying. And this is too much for us to accept it. We want to thank you, Jamil Afghani, for joining us, Afghan educator and feminist who leads the Afghanistan section of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, founder of the Noor Educational and Capacity Development Organization. And finally, Jan Eglund, we just have 30 seconds. But is it your sense that there is a division within the Afghan leadership that this could turn around? Uh, yes, uh, it's very clear that uh, this is uh, hardliners who wanted this. They have the upper hand now. We can reverse it. We must reverse it. And by the way, we're not pulling out. We're there. We can start to resume our work for millions of people in need tomorrow. But then we need to do it with our female colleagues. And there are how many Afghan colleagues at your organization, Norwegian Refugee Council, out of how many? Well, one third of our staff, 500 nearly, 
of our 14, 1500 uh, aid workers are female and, and they are highly professional, highly committed, working very hard. They are very often the breadwinner of their family. We need them to be able to communicate with and work for the Afghan people. Jan Eglund, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, speaking to us from Oslo, Norway. Next up, pandemic poverty. Stay with us. Not Alone by Alison Russell, featuring Brandy Carlyle. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we end today's show looking at some of the people falling through the cracks of the social safety net during the pandemic and how they're coping. They're the focus of a new series of video reports by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Intercept called Insecurity that look at women leaving the workforce, the impact of the expanded child tax credit, and the wave of union organizing. Each day this week, a new report will be published, a series narrated by longtime award-winning journalist Ray Suarez, who will join us in a minute. This is a clip. Hi, I'm Ray Suarez. I've been covering the news for more than 40 years. It feels like just a moment ago I was anchoring an evening news program on the all-news cable channel Al Jazeera America. Hillary Clinton's email. Before that, I had long tenures with the PBS NewsHour and with NPR. When Al Jazeera suddenly collapsed, I shoved down my panic. I kept one eye on my dwindling bank balance and started to freelance and kept another eye out for the next big thing. When I lost my job, my wife and I had to make some tough decisions, especially around the cost of health care. For that and other reasons, I've become particularly interested in the burdens the pandemic and life in America itself have placed on people. So I've teamed up with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Intercept to tell the story of people on the front lines, people facing different struggles. That's a clip from the introduction to the new series in security. One of the episodes this week focuses on Ishani Gaston of Durham, North Carolina, working multiple jobs, but still unable to afford to live on her own with her newborn son. This is another clip. 
I've done a lot of different jobs over the years. I've been in the healthcare industry, nursing aid, um, in-home aid. I've been in fast food, McDonald's, Burger King, Waffle House. But none of those jobs have paid enough for her to have her own place. To survive, Ishani lives with her mother and her son, who was born premature. My son came out with issues, so he has to see a lot of specialists, and um, we go to the doctors a lot. Trying to juggle being a mom, a job, it's, it's a struggle. For more, we're joined in Washington, D.C., by the host of Insecurity, Ray Suarez, longtime journalist and author, who's also the host of the radio program and podcast called On Shifting Ground, often in Shanghai. We're lucky to have him in Washington, D.C. right now. Joining us from New York, Alyssa Court, executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and author of Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, her new book coming out soon, Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from from the American Dream. We last had her on with the late, great Barbara Ehrenreich. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Ray, why don't you take it from those two clips we just heard, where you tell your own story and then tell the story—well, um, have the women themselves telling their own stories about pandemic poverty. What motivated you to do this? Well, when the crushing economic impact of the pandemic began, the government did step forward and try to put in some emergency provisions to cushion the worst of the blow, whether it was um, a, a, an amnesty on repayment of student debt, uh, help with rent and mortgage, stopping uh, people being ejected from their housing. There were attempts made. But part of the problem that we see across this series with Ishani, with Katie, with Lisa, is that these programs are not meshing with people's real lives. They are insufficient to completely shield people from the worst impacts of the downdrafts in the American economy right now. And we illustrate how. And, Ray, we recently saw the uh, the new Centers for Disease Control, uh, Control and Prevention stat statistics about uh, life expectancy in the United States, a two-and-a-half-year drop uh, in life expectancy since the start of the pandemic. And even, even though uh, 2021 was supposedly an economic rebound, life expectancy continued to uh, plummet. Uh, your, your reaction to what the, the impact has been now uh, on the American people of uh, not only of the pandemic, but the failures of our safety net. You know, this is a perfect illustration of how these attempts to help people in need brought about by the pandemic uh, just were insufficient, didn't go far enough. In the case of the decline in life expectancy, one of the effects was to, of the pandemic was to keep people out of hospitals, keep people from getting regular treatment for already existing chronic conditions. So people weren't getting their cancer screenings regularly. People weren't getting colonoscopies regularly. The despair, the mental health problems that we saw during the pandemic often went untreated. So we've seen a spike in suicides. We've seen a spike in drug overdoses. And those are two big drivers, those deaths of despair, uh, two big drivers of that decline in life expectancy for Americans. 
Uh, and your series focuses almost uh, largely on on women. Could you talk about the decision uh, to uh, do that in the series? Well, the old cliche is that they hold up half the world, but really they were picking up a lot more than half of the burden. And we see uh, in the first installment that uh, is available starting today, Lisa Ventura, um, a social worker in the New York area, and how an unseen part of this problem, something called administrative burden, falls so heavily on women, falls heavily on immigrant groups with perhaps less facility in English, less experience in navigating bureaucracies that are sometimes set up just to make it really hard to get the benefits that American workers are promised as part of the social contract. So women, it turns out, uh, they may hold up half the sky, but really they uh, they carry more than half of the weight in so, a lot of these areas. Ray, let's go to Lisa Ventura, who you talk about, uh, who you profile in an episode of Insecurity, talking about the barriers um, in order to obtain social services for everything from housing to food. Because we grew up on welfare and Section 8. There's like this big recertification packet that you need to fill out for both. And it's difficult because as a kid, you have to translate from English to Spanish. And I just had to learn how to do that, how to navigate that. Lisa has dedicated her professional and personal life to wading through the social service bureaucracy. What she's experiencing, the battle to obtain social benefits, has a name. The administrative burden. It's all the paperwork and red tape that blocks people from the help they need. Another excerpt of this excellent series um, called Insecurity um, that is done with the Intercept and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, uh, which Alyssa Cord is the director of. Alyssa, um, why don't you elaborate from there why not why Lisa is a part of this story, um, as well as the woman we're about to introduce, Katie? Well, Lisa and Katie were contributors to the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. They wrote about their experiences during the pandemic. And that's part of what we at Economic Hardship Reporting Project do. We find these voices, develop them, edit them, support them economically, and place their work in mainstream publications, which we then co-publish. So I had found Lisa. She had never published before. She was experiencing this incredible burden, this red tape burden. Uh, you know, she couldn't get uh, services for various members of her family, and she was working for her clients as well as a social worker. And this is a lot of the invisible labor that women did during the pandemic and do in general that's like unrewarded, unsupported. Child tax credit was supposed to help with that. It did for a while and no longer, right? We know it was blocked. So uh, that her story seemed incredibly important just about what a lot of women had experienced. Katie was another writer who came to us with her story about not being able to access therapy, psychiatry when she had mental health crises during the pandemic. And to me, she's also a very profound example of what, what women in particular also suffered, where they couldn't get 
through Medicaid, through uh, the, on their insurance therapy in general, it's very costly and very rare to find a therapist. In fact, Katie found one therapist and on her plan on Medicaid and was ghosted by that person. So there's a lot of uh, struggle here, and we're told constantly, you know, depression, anxiety are up, as Ray just pointed out. But we don't really have the resources as Americans right now to get the help we need for our, our mental health care. So that that was a point I really wanted to make, and that was a story I wanted to develop. And that's why so, we, we included Katie. Yeah. Let's hear mm-hmm. Katie's story uh, in her own sure. words, this clip from episode of, uh, from the episode of Insecurity, focusing on mental health and health care. As you describe Katie struggling to find a psychologist, Katie Prout decides to do community outreach activities to help with her mental health. But Katie found an outlet and a sense of purpose by helping people suffering from substance abuse. I would go down to the South Loop and hand out harm reduction supplies. And as I got to know people better and they would talk to me about their lives, people would also open up about their own emotional turbulence. Through those conversations, Katie unexpectedly got some advice for where to find a psychiatrist that accepts Medicaid. I felt lucky to be able to find the psychiatrist when I did, but it was like a bitter kind of luck because you shouldn't have to need luck in order to get your needs met. So that's Katie Prout. Um, Alyssa Court, you mentioned Medicaid, and many millions of people are going to fall off Medicaid uh, in this next year. Talk about the significance of this and how it shaped so much of what Katie was dealing with during the pandemic. I mean— to be fair, she was on Medicaid and couldn't access therapy. So, so, but it's going to be much worse when people are being kicked off the rolls, and that's happening. Uh, it's going to happen at greater levels. You know, we mentioned earlier the administrative burden. That's the burden that was by design installed in many of social programs to prevent Americans from accessing things that they're eligible for. So, for during the pandemic, um, people were more able to access Medicaid. They made it easier. Uh, they People could stay on the rolls longer. They didn't have to recertify within the same alacrity. Now, if that's all changed. It, it's going to be back to trying to recertify. There's going to be a wave of people who are losing their Medicaid. So that's going to add to these uh, illnesses, uh, mental health crises, and other kinds of um, uh, bodily health crises that will afflict people. So we should keep our eyes out for that. And I guess the point of the film was, you know, the pandemic has a legacy for people. And But there's also hope, and we can get into that too. There's hope in the clip you just showed uh, with Katie finding hope in the theory of harm reduction and in, in actually in helping other people, she helped herself. So that's one of the messages I, I hope insecurity will give the viewer. I'd like to get back to Ray for a second. Ray, I think it was barely a decade ago. I remember covering some of the earliest protests for $15 an hour minimum wage. And at the time, I was told by some of my colleagues in the media, that's a pie in the sky dream to get $15 an hour. Today, $15 an hour isn't even in many states uh, uh, far from sufficient to be able to have any kind of a decent living. Wondering your 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 view on how in some states still the federal minimum wage is the minimum wage and uh and what the uh what the minimum wage should be in this country for uh for workers well the living wage as you note is something that's 
not paid in a lot of places. And our episode with Ishani Gaston is a beautiful illustration of that. She was, at the time we came into her life, working two full-time jobs and not clearing $30,000 a year. And that kind of low-wage work, chronic low-wage work, makes her eligible for various kinds of programs, Medicaid, uh, women in inf- with infant children, WIC programs. Uh, she gets support for uh, special needs uh, for her uh, boy. But who's subsidizing Ishani Gaston? These are often called entitlements, these programs. And people resent it. And they talk about people who don't want to work. Ishani was working 80 hours a week. But those low wages being paid by her two bosses were being subsidized by the taxpayers of the United States. They were able to pay a wage that does not provide enough sustenance for Ishani and her child. And the federal government makes up the gap. So people who are uh, buying the picture frames that she was packing at one of her jobs, buying the chicken sandwiches she was making at another one of her jobs, they're being subsidized. Their cheap chicken sandwiches and low-cost picture frames are, in fact, uh, cheap for them to buy because the employers themselves don't have to bear the cost of getting this work done. And we really have to look that right in the face. Who's benefiting from chronic low wages? It's not the worker. It's not necessarily the public. I mean, you and I are paying uh, the gap for, for Ishani and millions of workers like her. Who's being subsidized is the employer who does not have to pay a living wage to his or her workers. And yet what gives Ishani hope um, is obviously not the level of hours she's working, the number of jobs that she has, but organizing, uh, pushing for unionization, pushing the fight for 15 uh, with a community activist group that she says she will devote her life to, Ray. It has given her a sense of purpose. It's given her a crusade to become a leader in and find her own voice as a leader, rallying workers in these two, uh, in the in the very low paid fast food industry uh, to get union representation, which will help them pay for benefits and also fight for a higher hourly wage. So the group called see Raise somebody, Up the South. And, and she is getting uh, a sense of purpose, uh, getting a political education, and also uh, fighting to put food on her own table. It's a very inspiring story. And uh, Alyssa, I wanted to ask you, uh, we hear a lot about the great resignation uh, in, uh, in recent years and this paradox of on the one hand, there's a labor shortage uh, and yet, uh, especially among older workers, more and more people dropping out of the workforce. Uh, your, uh, uh, what has this series told you about this whole issue of the Great Resignation? Well, I mean, we have two instances. One person who did uh, quit, and you'll find out about that. Uh, she was burnt out. And the another person, Shawnee, who could not afford to quit. So I think the Great Resignation, we have to look at who is quitting and who isn't. And she's she's not quitting. She's working whatever job she can get. And 
And often the people who are leaving the workforce have to leave them to take care of their children. So it, I think the whole story that the Great Resignation is this uh, radical moment. I mean, we like the story, but I think we should really look at uh, why, who and why people are leaving, like who, who can leave and who can't, and what in the end this will mean uh, for us. Because I think uh, people like Ashani, she'll take what she can get and she's not going to be part of the res- great resignation because she, uh, she has a son she has to take care of. We have 20 seconds, Ray. What you take from this? That people who work hard and work always to make a living know what's up. And the biggest lie we tell ourselves is that Americans don't want to work hard. Well, Ray Suarez, I want to thank you for doing this and all of your work over the decades. Longtime award-winning journalist, host of the new series by Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Intercept called Insecurity, launching a new episode each day uh, looking at pandemic poverty. And Alyssa Court, executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, author of Squeezed, Why Our Families can't afford America. Her forthcoming book, Bootstrap, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. A very happy belated birthday to Narmin Maria. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.